everyone, and welcome to On Trial, the podcast where we explore how to build your practice, trial tactics, and what can make and break your case. We're your hosts. I'm Matt Heimler. And I'm John Risbold. And today, this is kind of a different episode for us. We're not really talking about trial. We're more talking about, you know, the business aspect of running a firm, which, you know, law firms at the end of the day are businesses. And it's really important to have at the head of the firm, you know, a leader who kind of takes charge and has a vision and, you know, takes the kind of action to implement the vision that they have. And I got to speak with Patricia Gifford from my firm, from Malman Law, who is our chief operating officer. And she really has come on and, you know, done some really cool things within our firm that you're going to get to hear about in a little bit. I'm obviously a big fan of her. I'm very biased, but John, tell me what you thought about what Trish had to say. I'm also a big fan of her and I don't get the pleasure of working with her. Look, you can't try cases if you can't get cases. And so it is a business and you have to be able to be in a position where people know what you do. People want to refer cases to you or they want to work with you or they trust you and they like you and they hire you so that you can get to trial. If you want to be a trial lawyer and you don't have any cases, then tough luck. So you're absolutely right. The business side of things is vitally important. I really liked everything she had to say from beginning to middle to end. What I really liked was her focus on leadership and how you don't have to be in a position of leadership. Like you don't have to be the senior partner in the firm to exhibit leadership in the firm. You can lead from wherever you are. And it's really just about your mindset and the example that you set and the quality of the work that you put forward that shows other people how you're an effective leader. It was really, really insightful. And I've seen that firsthand. She has included all of the staff when it comes to developing what the firm's values are, when it comes to you know, the, the marketing of who we are. It's really an all, it's a very inclusive environment. It's been very cool to be a part of. And you know, I just can't wait for you guys to hear about it. It's really great uh, to hear from someone with a clear vision and, and really the importance of not only having that vision, but stating it, repeating it, Follow and following through with actionable uh, items that you know not not only the lawyers but all the staff it really gets to be involved and feel like they're a part of something bigger than themselves. It really kind of helps the firm run and it it, it kind of makes people go above and beyond without necessarily asking them to because they feel like you know they trust one another and they're working for one another and you know it, it really is has become a great place to work and again I'm excited to be a part of it. Yeah, she talked about culture and building a firm culture. And I think the culture is so important. If you look to sports and you look at, especially at collegiate sports, at teams that are really, really effective, it's because they have that culture. I'm reminded of uh, PJ Fleck, who's the coach at the University of Minnesota, and his phrase is row the boat. We're all rowing the boat in the same direction. And I think you can apply that to any law firm. And it's exactly what she talked about. You have to be moving in the same direction with a common purpose. But once you have that common purpose and once you have that goal, everybody can get on board and they can get excited about it. And then they stay engaged and all of your cases get better. You're able to help more people. And really, at the end of the day, you know, she said it. And I know Steve Malman says it like we're not building widgets in this business. Like that's not the business that we're in. We don't build a product. We're in the business of helping people. And if we have that common mission and everybody's rowing the boat in the same direction, we can help a lot of people. Yeah, this is a service industry after all. And that's really what we're striving to do is provide the highest quality services for our clients. You know, that's the goal of every attorney is to do that. And it's nice to have, you know, good leadership at the helm 
you know, that gives you the tools to enable you to do that. The other, the other thing that she talked about that I thought was really important in this day and age was branding. Everybody knows their favorite brand, their favorite company by logos or by site, right? You know what Nike shoes look like. You know what an Apple phone looks like because they've got great branding. Lawyers can do that themselves as well. Firms definitely, but individual lawyers within the firm can brand themselves as a certain type of lawyer or a certain type of practice. And you know, clients want to hire people. They don't necessarily always want to hire a firm or a company. They want to hire somebody that they know, they like, and they trust, at least in my experience. And I think you know that's been the experience with you. And that's the experience that Patricia is also sort of conveyed when she talks about building the firm's brand, not just around, you know, the name, but around the people. And that again goes back to culture and how important the culture is. I'm just really interested for everybody to hear how she talks about the interplay between those and how it leads to successfully running a firm. Absolutely. Without anything else, let's hear it from Patricia Gifford. Today, we're pleased to welcome Patricia Gifford to the show. She is the Chief Operating Officer and Head of Wallman Law Champaign, Illinois office. Patricia represents injured victims and their families in nursing home negligence, medical malpractice, and wrongful death cases. She has secured millions of dollars for her clients in settlements and verdicts, including a recent $1.7 million verdict in a chiropractic malpractice case. Trish, thanks again for coming on. Thanks for having me, Matt. And, you know, full disclosure, I've known Trish since uh, I believe as my secretary referred to it as I was a baby lawyer when I first met you. And she actually hired me to Malman Law. So I, I'm very biased in this interview. I, I think you're great. <laughs> I always have. But I really want to talk with you because I think, you know, even though I wasn't working and wasn't a part of this, you know, I think what you're doing is so cool. And I think it's really important that people hear about the changes that you're making and kind of your vision for the business end of a law firm. I know John and I talk usually about the trial aspect, but you know, these are businesses after all. And I think that's where your expertise has come in and you're really doing some interesting things that I think people uh, should know about. So thanks again for coming on. Well, thanks for all of the nice compliments. We have known each other for a very long time. And when you and I first talked about you coming on board, I was absolutely thrilled to have you come on board. It's exactly what I want to see uh, happen. So I'm happy to talk about the business aspect for a change instead of trials and depositions and, you know, different allegations in a complaint. So we're looking at a little bit different aspect today. Yeah. And, and a lot of, you know, where you've come with your ideas comes from your experience before you became a trial lawyer. You kind of have a different background than most of us who are in the field. Tell us a little bit about that. So I didn't go to law school until I was 35. So I've been out for, sworn in for 15 years now. But prior to going to law school, I have about 12 years of business experience. And I was director of operations for a global commercial real estate and services organization. And we went through a lot of changes over the course of the last three or four years that I was there, mergers, acquisitions, buying up our, co our competition. And so to be able to change manage through all of that was sort of a big challenge. And then I decided I always wanted to go to law school. So I took a year off and then decided I was gonna I was gonna go to law school and have been doing law ever since and really focusing on learning how to be a good trial attorney and good and a good litigator all this time. 
while in the back of my head, I was watching things go on from an operations and a business perspective, some of which were great, some of which I thought were not so great. But I knew that I was still too too new and young of an attorney and needed to learn a lot more before I would ever be able to focus on doing the operations and the litigation. So I sort of put my ops hat in the closet for all of those years and sat around like a sponge and absorbed the good, the bad, and the ugly and sort of carried it with me until I got to put it back to use. Well, now they've got your ops hat back on. Let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, what your leadership style is, you know, what things are, have you tried to implement now that you're in a position to make those kinds of changes within a firm? So, you know, I think a lot of us or a lot of folks who go to law school and then become lawyers, you might be the most fantastic trial attorney on the face of the planet, but without that sort of business experience or, you know, the leadership, mentorship, management, operations, those are all different skill sets. So the things that I've been doing are a lot of things that I've just sort of, I've known, I've had the experience of, but I've always kept up on leadership and operations. So one of my sort of leadership gurus is a guy by the name of Simon Sinek. I'm a huge fan of his. A few years ago, he wrote a book called The Infinite Game. A few years before that, he wrote a book called Find Your Why. And finding your why is all about doing some investigating as to why it is that you do the things that you do and why it is that you've chosen the career that you've chosen and et cetera. And then the book, The Infinite Game, really sort of changes the way that people look at business. Business is an infinite game. There is no end to it. There is no winning at business. And for many years, since probably the 70s, we've been playing this game with finite rules and you can't really play an infinite game with finite rules. So there's a lot of sort of a change in mindset and things that I agree with that he says with regards to business, it's definitely a change in mindset. We're playing not just a long game, we're playing a long, long, long game. We don't look at competitors as competition. They are worthy rivals. They they sort of show us the things that we're not doing as well as we could or as well as they they are. They point out the weaknesses to us. So we should look at them as worthy rivals and not competition. We look at things like leadership is huge. I don't believe in bosses, managers. No one wants to be boss. No one wants to be managed. No one wants to be supervised. They want to be led. And leadership really has very little to do with rank and authority. You can have rank and authority and be a horrible leader. You can have absolutely no rank and authority and be on the bottom of the to- of the totem pole and be one of the biggest leaders that's there. It's all about the people that you have around you, knowing that you have the guys back to your right. You've got the guys back who's on your left. And that's really what creates leaders. It is also a different skill set. So teaching people how to be good leaders. There are natural born leaders, there's no question, who have those characteristics to begin with. But teaching people leadership skills is sort of a challenge as well. It's kind of like being a parent. You've got to constantly practice and continue to up your game as far as leadership goes. And I think, you know, although I'm a pet parent, not a parent parent, I you know, we know that parents look at look at their kids and they want to give them the moon, the stars and the rainbows. And as a parent, you can't give your kid everything. You have to consider the entire unit. You have to consider what's best for them in the long run as well. So, you know, if your kid wants a Maserati, you don't go out and get that if the entire family unit's going to suffer because of it. So 
it's big picture type thinking and a little bit different thinking. Trust is a big deal in it and creating what we call these circles of safety so that people feel in the workplace that it's a safe place to make mistakes, ask questions, those kinds of things. So it's a lot of stuff. Yeah, this sounds like a whole nother podcast we could do just yeah, on sorry. your influences and no, but it, it's it's great to hear because honestly, you it's not the kind of thing you hear a lot in the legal realm. You know, I, I have friends who work in, you know, corporate America and these are things that a lot of companies, you know, strive to achieve and they have whole departments that are dedicated to implementing these kinds of things. And that department, that whole aspect in the legal profession, especially in the smaller, less corporate firms is really not there. So it's just really good to hear, you know, those kinds of, that kind of empathy and understanding, you know, on a, on a, on a level that you, again, is, is kind of rare in the industry and I'm glad that you're bringing it to it. Well, it's, it's fascinating to me because, you know, the legal profession is, has just been such its own, I don't know, profession and had its own sort of way of thinking for such a long time. You know, for years, advertising and marketing was frowned upon. It was, you know, people weren't even allowed to do it for a long time. And it took the legal profession a while to get on board with the fact that you need that aspect. It is a business nonetheless. Um, the same way with all of these other things that we're talking about from operations and systems and culture, those things are all just parts of business. There's a reason that it works in business. And these are all businesses. There are businesses is a law firm. I've heard people use the, use the term corporatizing. And I don't really even understand what that word, every organization out there is a business and functions as an entity in some group through its people. And if you function through your people, depending on how many you have, you need to have systems in place. You need to have operations in place. You need to have uh, concern for your culture and your leadership and uh, your employees. So it's it has always just made sense to me that it's something that we need to consider in the legal profession. Yeah, so let's talk about what you've been doing at our firm because you kind of carved out a new position within the firm. What were you brought on to do? And talk a little bit about you know the the many hats that you tend to wear as the uh, chief operating officer at the firm. Yeah, so obviously I brought the ops hat out, but Steve Malman, obviously, he loves the marketing and advertising aspect. That is what he is really good at, and that is what he, he really enjoys. He's known for quite some time that he needed a COO. He had been investigating opening a champagne office for quite some time. When we revisited that, one of the things that I brought up was, I had gotten to a place in my legal career that I felt that I was solid enough with my litigation skills that I'd like to get back to doing some ops. And it was as if a light bulb went off because he had been really looking for a COO for um, probably since January of 2020 and trying to decide whether he wanted to get a COO from outside the litigation arena and teach them litigation or to find somebody in litigation who he would then need to teach how to sort of be an, a chief operating officer. And he had sort of forgotten about all of the, the business experience I had. And he said, oh my gosh, I'd forgotten. This is a perfect fit for you to take this position as the COO. So one of the things that was really important to me was, you know, I'm no spring chicken. And it was really important to me that Steve and I be on the same page with regards to how he felt we needed to get where we needed to go. You're 
Steve's and your CEOs or your presidents, they're sort of your chief visionary officer. And those guys are the people with the vision. And the ops people are the ones who then take that vision and are able to pull it off. So it's really important to me that we both were on the same page with how we felt about things, how we felt about how important the culture was, the idea of playing an infinite game. He used a lot of very analogous terms. He didn't necessarily know about the infinite game, but you could I could tell just from our discussions, we were on the same page and he was using the same verbiage that, that we would use in the way that I think. So we very quickly decided that it would be a perfect fit and it would be a great opportunity for um, me to be able to take advantage of both of the levels of experience that I've had and put them to good use. We, I talked earlier about the whole finding your why, and it's something that you'll see in the firm at some point is that, you know, encouraging other people to find their why. And in doing a lot of exploring, I don't know, over the course of the last three or four years, I've really started to focus on, you know, my own leadership development and, and getting back to that. And in looking for my own why, I know one of mine is that I just love to help people. I think I get it from my dad, but that really, I really enjoy it. It sounds cliche, but if somebody calls me up and has a question about something and I answer that question, I really feel a hooray, I just helped someone. So I looked at this as a tremendous opportunity to help a whole bunch of people through the firm to be able to make their lives easier, to make their work better, hopefully to make the client experiences better as well. So I thought it was a great opportunity. And the hats, well, there's there's a lot of hats at this point. Obviously, the COO or the ops hat came out of the closet. I still wear my trial attorney hat. I'm the team lead for the Champagne office. I opened the Champagne office, which we opened in August. I also have my own caseload of nursing home cases. I want them. It's important to me that I have them because I love doing it, but it's also important to me that someone in this position stay very close to what the actual work is. I've been in situations where we've had either a COO or a CO, CFO or COO from outside of the industry, and they may not be in touch with what the actual work is. So for me, it's really important that I keep in touch and don't get too far removed from what the actual work is that we do. I think that's really important. So I've been doing nursing home litigation and I have my own caseload training. We've implemented training, which I think is really important. We have an actual training program for the new hires. We hired, oh gosh, I have the number somewhere, but I think we hired, since I started in August, I want to say we hired 14 attorneys. And at least seven of those were brand new who had no experience with nursing home litigation. So the first thing I did out of the box, in addition to setting up a way that we were going to hire people, was also set up a training program. We had two weeks of fairly intensive training for all of the new associates that included our nurse consultant, people from various walks of life within the firm and various experiences, myself a lot, obviously, and taught these folks everything from the Nursing Home Care Act to the anatomy of a nursing home chart and what a deposition is all about and what our goals in a deposition are, what F1s, F2s, F3s are. So we did that to really sort of give them a base at least so that they could come in and actually be helpful and not feel as though they walk in the door and say, okay, I'm here, what's a nursing home case? So we've got that. We were also lucky we recorded all of those. We've saved them all. We have a database now called the Law Library that has resources. It's got all the videos in there. We're all uploading our documents, templates, motions, 
deposition so that it's a resource for everyone within the firm to be able to have stuff. So that training is going on. As you know, as well, we have every Tuesday, we have a program called Bunch and Learn, where various attorneys share different topics, whether that's trial, deposition, 30B6 depositions. Last week, we talked about reciprocal complaints in our counts in nursing home cases. So we continue to share all of that. Thanks to you, we're also roundtabling cases a little more frequently so that we can talk about those. So there's the trainer hat. There's also, obviously, you know, from an operations perspective, we are also building the brand from trying cases. Obviously, once we can, once we get back to being able to try cases, we have a lot of attorneys who really want to try cases. And we as a firm want to try cases. So we're going to do that. We've been sort of setting ourselves up so that we're ready to go and creating and maintaining the culture. I was very fortunate to walk into a firm where there was a tremendous culture before I ever got here. And thank goodness, because my experience through COVID has been It's a lot easier to maintain a culture via Zoom and through the things that we're doing via Zoom than it is probably to build one. So we already had a really good base and we were able to maintain that through COVID. So there's a lot of hats. There's also, you know, mediator, advisor, family counselor, all of those hats we wear with our clients every day, opposing counsel. So there's a lot of hats that I wear depending on the day. A big thing that we did early on too was to restructure the organization. I should say the firm, because some people think it's corporatizing when you say the organization, but we are an organization. So we restructured our two litigation departments into teams, and we now have five nursing home teams with five team leads. We did that for a couple of reasons. We are quite large at this point, so it helps with communication helps with morale, helps with structure, reporting, and all of those sorts of things, and also allows for a lot of opportunity for growth for attorneys. We've sort of created a funnel of incoming talent and new associates who are coming in through that funnel and spending their first year learning and learning ins and outs of a nursing home case and litigation, and then with them working their way up as they learn to be able to handle their own caseload, and then move up into handling their own caseload into a senior associate position, and then into a team lead position, and then on and on and on. So that's what we're continuing to do is to keep that funnel going of new talent. I want to touch on something that you spoke a little bit about earlier. Uh, You talked about the tremendous growth that the firm has been going through in recent months, including COVID. Talk about how that process has been, you know, growing a firm, finding the right amount of staff and lawyers to meet the firm's needs. So um, Steve, like I said, is, is amazing at marketing and advertising. He loves it. He thrives at it because he's so good at it. There's, in my mind, there's two aspects, really two big aspects to any organization. And you've got the marketing and advertising aspect, and then you've got ops. And ops is pretty much everything else. But if you can sell and you can market and you can advertise, that's all great. If you can't operate, then you're never going to keep those clients. At the same time, if you're really good at operations, but you're not any good at sales and, at sales and marketing, you're never going to have any clients in the first place. So we had to look at staffing up, so to speak. Steve's goal for 2020 and 2021 was to create the Ritz-Carlton experience for our clients. And what I explained to him was that if and if I come on board to do this, then my goal is to create the Ritz-Carlton experience for the employees and the team. 
because in my opinion, you can't create it for your clients if you don't already have it for the people who are servicing servicing those clients. So he was on board with that 100%. He is, he kept the commitment to his vision. He trusts where we're going. He believes in the data and he believes in the science and it's working. So we also, we use the data to look at where we need to be. One of my goals was to decrease the caseloads because in my personal opinion, as well as from what I've seen play out, there is a threshold number of cases that someone can handle on their own, even with, you know, associates below them and paralegals and all that kind of stuff, where you start to cross over to that law of diminishing returns, where there are too many, you've crossed that threshold, and now it is taking more time to get them filed, to get them worked up, to get them settled, and you're not doing as good a job as you'd like to do. So the goal for me has always been in striving to create that Ritz-Carlton experience, both for our people and for our clients, to get those caseloads to that threshold. I am happy to report that we should be there by August or September. We literally just had a meeting going over the data. I'm a huge data person. Our case management software is very robust from the, our ability to look at data. I have more spreadsheets than the guy who created spreadsheets, probably, and I love them. So I was able to really look at look at the data and formulate a plan. We've been executing that plan through COVID, which again has been growing the firm. While other people slowed down, we did not. We kept our advertising where it was and we went out and hired, I've got a list somewhere. I think it's 14 new attorneys, seven paralegals, uh, medical records. So we've made a, made a lot of additions to the firm, but we did that so that we could get everybody to that threshold. Part of that, yes, it is through the data and our case management software gives us that, gives us the ability not just to track the caseloads, but, you know, we can look at just about everything through Smart Advocate. And so data is super important. But what I think is even more important than looking at the data is listening. And that is something that I strive to do is to make sure that I listen to the attorneys, the paralegals, the medical records, and what they're saying. I meet with them a lot. Our team leads meet with their teams at least once or twice a week. We meet with the team leads. I have individual meetings with departments. They're all via Zoom these days, although we're starting to get back to in-person. So I think one of the most important things, in addition to truly looking at the data, is also to listen because this is litigation. It's, we're not making widgets. Steve Voice says that, you know, we're not making widgets. It's not like every one of these is the same. No matter what you try to do or standardize or anything in litigation, every case is different. So there are what we call out of standard for just about everything. So you've got to have flexibility built into your plan. And I think that in addition to truly analyzing the data and looking at this as a business and forecasting where we're going to be based on the data, it's really important to listen to the people. Well, I, I think that's come through. I mean, the, the, the amount of communication between, you know, you and everybody else, it's just constant. It's a great process. And I, I can speak to it that that's actually happening 100% in real time. So well, I re- sorry, I remember when you and I first spoke about the potential of this and, you know, I'm still super excited about all of the things that we're doing. And I was super excited then. And I hope that what you've seen since you've been here for a relatively short time is that Another thing I firmly believe in is that we're walking the talk. I'm not just saying these things. We're doing it. We're not doing it all at once. We're doing it through COVID, which has been a challenge. 
but we are doing it from training to hiring to systems to processes to listening to making sure we have flexibility. So I hope you've seen that in the short amount of time that you've been here that we're putting our money where our mouth is. Oh, without question. And it's a really cool process. And I'm just, I'm glad to be a part of it. So I, I, I guess I'm a part of this question, but let you talked about the 14 or so lawyers that you brought on during COVID. And you say we, but I think a lot of it's mostly been you as far as actually bringing them into the fold. <laughs> Talk a little bit about that and how that you've been able to manage that, you know, remotely and with all the other challenges in place. So everything was done remotely. One of the first things in once we decided the structure that we were going to go with and how we needed this funnel of incoming talent to continue on, I use LinkedIn Recruiter. We haven't recruit, we haven't used a recruiter for anybody. Pretty proud of that. We've gotten 14 attorneys all from LinkedIn Recruiter or from word of mouth or you know people on the street have heard what we're doing, and so we've gotten some what I consider extremely high quality attorneys. Not sucking up, Matt, but people like you. And several who have reached out and said, I've heard you're doing some really cool stuff. I'm interested in learning more. And now they're on board. So that's really cool. So we did that. And yeah, most of it was me. I also hired HR. So we now have an HR department. We have a real HR person with 20 years experience, something you don't see that often in in our industry. And I think one of the biggest mistakes I made was I hired her after I did all of the hiring. So you know, lesson learned on that one. I wish we had her to begin with, but yeah, it was a lot of interviewing and the attorneys that were here, they were all more than happy to help interview and screen candidates and that kind of thing and make sure that we were getting people who were the right fit. Obviously our culture is very important to us. And so it was important that we had people that were the right fit. We had a little bit of attrition in the beginning, but quite frankly, that was expected. So far we have not had much. I hope it continues that way. It, it, you know, we're probably not going to be, what is it, batting a thousand, but we're, we're batting pretty good. And again, there's, there was some attrition, but it was expected. And, you know, like I said, we have an amazing culture going. So it started off with hiring a lot of people, putting the training in process, putting that into play, a lot of facilitating and doing it all remotely. In the beginning, when I first came on and I had my own onboarding experience, it was a little chaotic and clearly it hadn't really been thought through and planned on how we're going to do this remotely. So I tried to do it myself before HR came on just by at least turning everything into being fillable so that they were fillable PDFs. We have that capability. It makes life a lot easier. Now that Leisha Williams, our HR person, is on board, I think pretty much everything is through ADP, who we partnered with, and now all of the onboarding is pretty much done online. So we've made that process a lot a lot easier for folks just to get the onboarding in. And that's kind of a big process. So we did that. Again, the training and really empowering some of these folks who have been here for a really long time to sort of fly and be teachers for the new generation folks. So people are excited to step out of the box and do some teaching and do some training and share their knowledge with other people. So, so far, so good. Yeah, you talked a little bit about this earlier, but we're all organized into different teams as a, you know, there, there's an attorneys and then there's staff and they're all kind of grouped and organized. Talk about that and, and why you believe that's an important thing for our firm to help operate on the level that we want it to be operating on. Yeah. So we have a lot of cases. And if you look at any sort of 
organizational hierarchy, at some point you can't be too vertical, nor can you be too linear from a reporting uh, perspective and also from a quality control perspective, from a communications perspective. So from a caseload perspective, we were able to divide the nursing home department into five teams of two attorneys with their own caseloads. They have two associates beneath them. They have a paralegal and they have a medical records person on their team. There are a couple of reasons for the team concept. And one, like I said, is the reporting aspect. It also helps everybody's lives work a little more efficiently and without as much chaos in that you've got two associates and a paralegal assigned to this group of cases along with their attorneys who have their caseloads. You have one paralegal for a while. There was one paralegal who sometimes reported to this person and this person and was getting case assignments from everywhere. So it really helps them, you know, keep track of what they're doing and makes their lives less chaos, less chaotic. But in addition, we've got that whole, the trusted teams concept from Simon Sinek and leadership is that when you have teams, first of all, there's, I really start to get into this whole leadership stuff if you let me. So sorry, but core values is another thing that just came up because we did our core values as well. But, you know, teams, I have a tendency to break everything down and a team is not just a group of people who work together. It's not. Uh, A true team is a group of people who trust each other. So to be able to give these small groups of people of seven or eight people, uh, you know, headed by a team lead, the ability to create this team and this circle of safety and to create this, this trust amongst themselves Hopefully they will be able to thrive more and they will be happier and more productive and more, you know, committed and all those kinds of things. So that's part of the team concept as well is this idea that we are going to break off into trusted teams so that you can develop your own circle of safety within this, this group of trust. It also truly helps with reporting procedures, chaos, communication. When you're talking, I think we're up to Slack should tell us. We haven't even gotten into Slack yet, but we are up to 98 people as of today. So, and we have two more starting in June. So we'll be at a hundred by the middle of June. So when you've got that many people, it's important to break it off into manageable sections so that the communication is not too chaotic. The workload is not too chaotic and you can manage things better. It also allows for the ability to analyze productivity, results, all that kind of stuff a little bit better. I kind of pick up where you left off there, maintaining quality control in, you know, with litigation of all things, which as you talked about before is not widgets, is widely variable in, in outcomes, widely. I mean, every case is, when you say every case is different, I mean, you could have three cases with the same basic facts that could all have wildly different elements to it that may lead them to get resolved sooner or later or not at all. How are you doing maintaining quality control and how are you doing this without, you know, being physically present to check on people? So I think first and foremost is I'll go back to the core values, which I'm sure we'll talk about briefly, but the idea of trust, we have to trust that we have hired the right people for the right spots and that we trust our people to be doing what they're supposed to be doing. That's first and foremost. The second part is obviously listening. We talk about these cases, talk about the facts of them. Every case is different too, like you said, you know, 
I don't know if you experience this as well, but from if a defense attorney will come and say, you know, we'll pay you 300 on this case and you say no. And they say, well, you just you settled one just like it six months ago for that amount. It's always really frustrating to me because every case is different. The family is different. The family is motivated by different things. Certainly the facts are different. So it's impossible to take thousand cases and be able to put a true value on each one as to here's what we're going to do. I think we have to trust our attorneys that they know what they're doing, that they are going to have the client's best interests at heart. That's our job and that they will uh, make the appropriate recommendations. With that said, Smart Advocate certainly gives us the ability to look at our averages and look at who's settling what for what. We can look at trends. We can look at all those kinds of things. I trust and I believe that we have seen that it it works, that our people are doing the right thing. That doesn't mean that we let people just fly blindly. I practice this thing called trust but verify. So I trust people to be doing what they're doing, but certainly we have the reporting capabilities to be able to go and look and see our medical records getting out what they're supposed to be getting out for their goals. So you can really, you know, do it that way. But I think it go, it comes down to, do we have the right people and do we trust them? Because if we don't trust them, they probably shouldn't be working here in the first place. But we can, through our, our case management system, look at our averages. Are they increasing? Or are they decreasing? If they are decreasing, we need to figure out why. And a lot of that, again, can come from data, but it also comes from listening. Uh, and listening to the people who are doing it every day. You've talked a couple times about values and, and what in your mind is the benefit of, you know, generating those values, not only generating that, but then like explicitly stating them and, and kind of beating that drum with the people in the firm, you know, out loud. I, I know a lot of companies, you know, they, you know, they, they, their values are like, oh, we're going to hire good people, and but we're not going to really talk about it. It's not going to be a part of the, our communication. Why, why do you think that's important? So, you know, core values have been around for a really long time. They serve a lot of different purposes, one of which is to, that's the, that's the dog. One of those purposes, though, is to tell the outside world what is important to us as an organization. Another purpose is to tell all of our team members what is important to us as an organization and who we want to be. They are supposed to be the guiding pillars of how we're going to behave as individuals and as a part of this firm. So, you know, we've recently rolled out our core values. It was a huge project that took months, obviously in the middle of COVID and in the middle of, you know, upscaling and staffing and things, but we felt it was important enough to focus our time on it. And, you know, trust is sort of our, our underlying, you've heard that in the theme a couple of times today, but trust is our overarching core value. And again, to break down trust, what is it? Trust is not, you know, it's, it's not an emotion. It's not something you make people do. Uh, it's, it's, it's a belief. And what is a belief? It's a human emotion that's been rationalized and justified. The only way that you can rationalize and justify an emotion to turn it into a belief is through behavior. So through the behaviors that we're going to exemplify, that's how we will allow people to trust us. That is how we will allow the staff to be in these you know, circles of safety and feel that they're, they are in a trusted environment where they can be vulnerable. By being vulnerable, I don't mean that we're walking around the halls crying about things. Being vulnerable to, be, to make mistakes. And to ask for help and to ask questions, you know, I want that environment and I think it's where people thrive. 
So by outlining and really making those part of our culture and in addition to part of our brand, you know, we say that we know what matters most and we know what matters most, not to our clients, well, to our clients, but not only to our clients, but to our, to our own people. And that is trust. And how we're going to get there is by these different behaviors that fall underneath the characteristic of trust. And that is being truthful, being reliable, being understanding, continuing to be service-driven and operating through teamwork. So we're going to model those behaviors that will allow our staff members as well as the outside world to trust us. And I think that's really important. It not only gives the outside world an idea of who we are and what they can expect from us, but it gives all of our team members guidance. If there isn't a policy or procedure or protocol or no one to call, you can, if you're making a decision and it aligns with our core values, you're making the right decision. So it's, it's a kind of cool thing. We followed the, you know, Rockefeller habits and followed a whole roadmap along the way to make sure we developed them and, and looked at those characteristics that we felt reflected not just who we who we are, but who we want to be. And I think, again, the biggest thing, I'll say that again, is that we walk the talk. If these become nothing but words on the wall, then they're meaningless. So we had the rollout. You were there, I'm sure, where literally people are not only given permission to hold anyone and everyone accountable to these core values, but they don't, you don't just have permission to hold people accountable. You have a duty to hold people accountable to it. So it's who we want to be. You talked a little bit earlier about the firm culture and how it's easier to, you know, maintain one than create one when you're walking into a situation like this during COVID. Talk about some of the things that you've done uh, to create engagement among the staff and to kind of make work a, a great place to be for the people that work here? So I can't say that I've done these things. I've certainly encouraged them to either continue, become more, those kinds of things. But on Fridays in about 11 minutes, we have something called Bucket of Bucks. I can't take credit for that. That is Joyce. You know Joyce. Joyce actually was my assistant for eight years at a former firm before she came over here, I think six years ago. So I'm thrilled to be back in the same place with her because she's amazing. But she brought our bucket of bucks concept over and we do that every Friday. We do it virtually now, but it's a fun little thing for everybody to participate in. And the winner at the end of the day wins, wins prizes. Last week we did virtual bingo where Steve called bingo for everybody and we gave out gift cards and merch and swag and that kind of stuff. And so that's really fun. We've tried to keep those things going. We also, for communication, but also to make sure that people are still engaged. The team leads have uh, once or, I'm sorry, team lead meetings once or twice a week, meetings with their teams. And then once a week we do team leads meetings, communication, but also engagement, at least the ones that I'm involved in. We always try to do something fun in the beginning, even for if it's just for a few minutes so that we get to know each other uh, a little bit more. So we're continuing to do those kinds of things. The last two days, I had a Zoom with some of the attorneys who had some stuff that they wanted to talk about. We did that. It was fantastic. And then we're starting to get back to in-person events as well. So a few weeks ago, we had a dinner at a, a private dining room in Chicago. We also had a happy hour where we rented out the whole place. So there was plenty of space for everybody. And then I think June 24th, we have an outdoor event planned. September 3rd, we have another outdoor event planned. And in between those two, we are trying to get a retreat planned 
for all of us attorneys. That'll either be two, three days, maybe uh, Lake Geneva, maybe Kohler. We'll do some team type training. We'll have somebody come in from the outside and also do some fun stuff, maybe golf, spas, whatever people want to do. So we're trying to keep those things going. You know, I have a Zoom link that's my own Zoom link. And there are days that I feel like I should just leave it on. And, you know, people just come in and out of my Zoom all day into my sort of study that I've got going here and ask whatever you want. But it's a it's a little bit different to see people's faces. So thank goodness for Zoom. Right. No, I, I can't imagine what we'd be doing if this happened, you know, even five, 10 years ago. Mm-mm. It's crazy. It's very crazy. The other thing, too, from a culture perspective and trying to make sure that we continue to walk the talk, we partnered with a company called... Culture Amp, which is a group of data scientists and psychologists, and they've developed a ton of engagement surveys that you, they'll help you design from their templates, but also you can add your own things. And as you all know, we rolled out our first uh, engagement survey a couple of weeks ago, and we've gotten the data back on that. The way that we're able to mine the data and look at the data through their platform is amazing. So we're going to be talking about the results of the Culture Amp survey within the next couple of weeks for wide as well. And then talking to individuals as well. It allowed us to see what we're doing well, what we're not, what we're doing not so well. And the one commitment that I made to everyone, because I've been in these groups of people where we get surveys and nobody takes them seriously. You're like, great, here comes another survey. Nothing's ever going to happen. So what's the point? That was my commitment when we um, talked about doing the engagement surveys and partnering with Culture Amp is that we will never, ever send out a survey unless we have an actionable plan formulated so that we can act upon the results of the survey. And this one was really about how we did through COVID, what we're doing right, what we're doing not great, what we need to do to get people back to work, how people feel about coming back to work, their safety and that kind of thing. So the results were really fascinating. The way that we can look at the data is fascinating. And I hope that we've been able to come up with a good plan as a result of the actual data. Sure. Well, I mean, you've only been at this, I mean, it's been about a year <laughs> at the firm, right? It's been about a it'll year be at the firm. August, August 3rd, it'll be a year. So not yeah. quite a year. Yeah. yeah. So I had, and, and a lot, you've done a lot in, in a very relatively short amount of time, especially in the legal world where time is in its own continuum. We operate in, at a much slower pace than the rest of the world. Talk a little bit about what your goals are for the firm. I mean, short-term goals, long-term goals. What, yeah. what are you hoping for us to achieve through all this? So my goals are, I, I had a list of goals when I started and, you know, I'm pretty shocked at all we've been able to accomplish so quickly. Even one of the attorneys who really has an excellent business had said to me the other day, he said, I was anticipating 18 months before we would really see any of this start to take shape. He's like, I'm pretty surprised that we're not even a year in and we're able to see the results of what's what's really happening. So that made me feel really good. I truly operate on this this idea that, you know, I just got to keep going and going and going. And I feel like there's so many things that are 70%. And I think everybody's just going to benefit from them. So I want them out there sooner rather than later. But we are talking about change and change is hard. It doesn't matter if it's great change or not, it's still, it's still, it's very hard. So yeah, we have to be able to manage that. And there are a lot of things that I hold back rolling out until I give people a chance to breathe. You know, we just rolled something amazing out. 
let's roll something else amazing out. Now let's give people a minute to breathe so that, you know, we're not overwhelming them. Short-term goals are to get our key performance indicators, the KPIs, uh, truly rolled out. That's been something that's been on the back of my mind since I walked through the door. It's like a moving target though. And like you said, litigation, everything's different. So it's it's really been a challenge to get those developed so that they're reasonable and attainable. We have gamified this to a certain degree. There's a concept up called gamifying sort of business so that people have goals and you turn it into a game. And we've done that a little bit with regards to you know, here are your targets, et cetera. Here's your reward when you hit the target and things. So, but KPIs are a part of that. So I want to get that done. I definitely want to get more systems in place. As you probably know, we also need standardization in our case management system. We've sort of had, you know, people who have been here for a really long time and we have a lot of them, which is amazing, which speaks volumes to the culture. Everybody's sort of doing their own thing from a case management software perspective naming things, the standard nomenclature. So I'd like to see everybody get on the same page there. It's a big project and it's been ongoing. Continue with training. And the big thing too is, you know, my goal is, you said it too, time. The one thing that every plaintiff's attorney that I know of, the one thing that you could give them as the biggest gift is time so that we can do things that we want to do on our cases and do some of the fun things that will add value and make them better cases once we get to trial. So that is my goal by decreasing the caseloads and getting some incredibly talented people here is to give the attorneys more time to do, not only have some personal lives and some balance, which I hope people have been able to do through COVID and, and remote work, but also by giving them more time, lessen, lessening up the caseloads so that they have time. I think it, if you have time, you think better. You're a better attorney. You're thinking strategically and, and that kind of thing. So that's my gift or that should be my gift, I hope. And then my very, very long, long, long-term goal is, let's see, I think Rockefeller calls it your BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal, I think. Something that's unattainable, but you should have it is, I truly want to create the very best law firm, not only for the clients, but for everybody who works here. So that if anybody ever fills out a survey, we win the top award saying, this is the best place uh, to work. And that the clients say it's the best place to have a case as well. That's my goal. Well, it's a, it's a great goal. And we're, we're honestly, we're, we're doing a lot of things. We're making a lot of changes and I feel like we're on the way. So, I mean, that's as real all you can ask for. So I hope so. It's a lot. I think sticking to our core values, sticking to the plan, you know, Steve's courage, quite frankly, to stick to his vision and, continue to grow and hire and thrive during COVID, you know, that's commendable because that is not easy to do, you know, motor vehicles, people were no, were not driving at all. Imagine those kinds of things, but he has had the courage and the conviction to stick to this vision. And I think it's paying off. He also truly, truly cares about the people that work at the firm. I mean, truly cares about them. So he wants to see them happy. He wants to see them thrive. And I think that what comes along with that automatically, assuming that you're paying attention to the data and that you have a business plan, is that the numbers will absolutely follow along suit. And so far it's working. Well, that's good to hear. I'm excited excited to be a part of it. In addition to my dog. Yes. And and say hello to your dog for us. And 
again, I want to thank you for coming on, sharing this. You know, it, it's really it's a, an amazing perspective that you bring. You know, as far as the business aspect of this, it's something that some people think about, but not the the, the knowledge and the kind of the insight that you have into all, all this. I, I think is really amazing, and it's I, and I can speak to the fact that this is all happening. Believe it or not, it sounds like a lot. It is a lot. Uh, but this is all actually getting done and it's it's a great thing to be a part of. So thanks again for sharing with us and I will let you go to Bucket of Bucks now. Thanks, Matt. I'll see you at Bucket of Bucks. Thank you. And there you have it, a, a great interview with Patricia Gifford. I want to thank her again for taking the time and you know sharing her knowledge and experience with us. Uh, I know there's something that we all can kind of take out of this as far as, you know, how to develop a firm, how to, you know, run things and how to, you know, create an environment where people really want to do the best for one another. And before we wrap up today, we're going to give you our 30 second trial tip. One thing we do to make our cases stronger and our trials better. John, what's yours for this week? Yeah, I'm stealing this from Mark Lanier. And if anybody doesn't listening to this podcast doesn't know who Mark Lanier is, He's the guy that got a two plus billion dollar verdict against Johnson and Johnson that actually got paid. Johnson and Johnson wired him money after he threatened to take possession of several of their properties just about a week and a half ago. But he says when he's deposing an expert or when he's got an expert on the stand and they want to run from a question or they want to ramble, he lets them get all their nonsense out and then turns right to them and says, what question did you think you were answering? And then lets them answer that question because it points out to the jury or whomever might see the transcript or the video, this guy's just full of it. He's just rambling on about nothing because he wants to say what he's been paid to say. And you can point it out effectively to the jury. And I've seen him do it in video about a dozen times with an expert witness in that Johnson & Johnson, the talc trial. And he just turns right to the guy matter of factly and says, what question did you think you were answering? And it's a really effective way to pick apart an expert without being rude to the expert or criticizing them in a way, just pointing out to the jury, this guy's giving you the runaround and you need to pay attention. No, it's a great tip. Uh, Mine for this week is make sure that your jury will relate to your client more than the defendant or the defendant's employees. You know, I do a lot of medical cases, a lot of nursing home cases. and, And one thing that you are at risk of doing is potentially having the jury relate more to some of the CNAs and nurses at the hospital or nursing home than your client if you don't approach them the correct way at deposition and at trial. You know, we we try to make things systemic to the extent that that's possible. And, you know, understand that while, while this person, this individual's care, this CNA or this nurse's care may have been the actual thing that caused harm to your client, you know, make sure that you let the jury know that this is part of a broken system. That's what the real problem is. The problem isn't this nurse or this CNA. The problem is they're involved in a system that is not working. So make sure that you focus on on who the real uh, people who at fault are and make sure that you treat the individuals, the CNAs, the nurses who are doing some of the hands-on care appropriately so that you don't alienate your jury. Yeah, I love that. That's fantastic. Absolutely. And with that, that's going to be our episode for today. I want to thank Patricia Gifford. And remember that you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at On Trial Podcast. 
You can also rate us and leave us your feedback on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. Until next time, we'll see you on trial.